Good morning. Let's try that one more time. Good morning. That's a little bit better. I'm glad that you're all awake, that you're here this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to be here one more time. I'm glad that you came and uh, to worship with us today. I want to say something that's kind of off record, but, uh, you know, I've been around a long time and been in a lot of places, and especially five years been in denominational life and uh, served in many different capacities and have been in many different places similar to this, but there is no place like this place. Come on now. There is no place like Paramount Baptist Church. Seriously, I don't think you realize that you know what you have until you don't have it anymore. Really, you don't. I brag about you guys all the time. Everybody wants to know, how is it at Paramount? I said, well, you know, outside of Victor, everything else is great. <laughs> Sorry, Victor, I had to throw you under the bus, brother. He did not wear a vest today, so I'm, I'm shocked. But uh, anyway, we ought to have vest day just for Victor. But you guys have an incredible church, and Garrett is one of the best worship leaders outside of my son that I know. Um, seriously. I know a prophet is never honored in his hometown, but uh, it is great that he is here, and I'm glad to serve with him and with your church staff. I want to thank you, too, for the opportunity that uh, you've given to us, not only to be here, but to be loved by you during this period of, in, uh, in our loss and our family, and I have, I have felt your prayers and uh, your encouraging words. I have now more friends on Facebook I, had than I have now than I had a couple of weeks ago, and uh, so some of you have been very gracious to friend me on Facebook, and you have sent uh, things on Facebook that have been very encouraging, and thank you for praying for us. Some of you have sent cards, and I've received a couple of texts and during this time. So my dad was buried last Thursday at 11 o'clock, and it was really weird. Really weird. I think if I had known what I know today, 45 years in ministry, I might have been a different pastor to those who lost loved ones. I had never lost a family member, and it is very strange. And if you've lost one that's close to you, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, I would not want to be anywhere else other than here today. And so my wife did not come with me today because she's with our younger son who's a pastor in Canada, and they're going to church today where our son pastors who wrote... I think two of the songs that we sang this morning, I think. So, uh, yeah, he uh, writes hymns for the church. He does not rock, write pop music or hymns that are to be sung on the radio. He writes congregational music. And so uh, it's great to be here. And I didn't say that the Garrett's so great just because he sang my son's songs, but because he is great. <laughs> just want to be on the record of saying that. Uh, today we're going to continue our series in what many call the Lord's Prayer or what we have redefined and many have done that as well, called the Disciples' Prayer. And it's found in Matthew chapter 6. It's also recorded in Luke 4. And uh, we are going to take a look and, and a, a deep dive into this passage because I, I think it's really important that we do so. Because Jesus told us last week, pray then like this. We talked about when you pray and then you pray. You, when you pray, then you pray like this. It is an imperative. It is a command. He is expecting his disciples to pray. We identified the disciples more than likely were men who prayed in the morning, in the afternoon, and the evening. Not only did they pray privately, but they also prayed together as a team, as a ministry team. 
They watched Jesus pray many times to go off by himself and pray. And so it was not uncommon and uncharacteristic of them to say, hey, Lord, teach us to pray. And he taught them in Luke 4 how to pray. But he gave this also to us in the Sermon of the Mount. And that's where we're going to focus our attention in Matthew chapter 6 with verse 9 today. And there's a reason why I want to camp out just here today. Notice the title. I don't know if you have it or it's Our Highest Honor. That is the title of our study today, Our, our Highest, I said it like North Texas, didn't I? Our Highest Honor, anyway. Our Highest Honor. I believe that as we pray, this single sentence is the highest honor we have when we pray. It is of that, day I dare to say, of paramount importance. It is critical that we understand that this is our highest aim. It is our ultimate purpose. It is our life goal, not only as we live out our life and fulfill our calling, but as we pray. And that is to hallow the name of the Lord. That is the highest honor we could possibly be given by God himself in the words of Christ. And so in honor of the infallible, the inerrant, authoritative word of God, I invite you to stand one more time, and we're going to read the Lord's Prayer, beginning with verse 9, as Jesus gives it to his disciples in the Sermon of the Mount, beginning with verse 9 out of Matthew 6. Follow along with me as I read it for us. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, thank you for the joy, the privilege, and the opportunity we have to stand in honor of you and your holy word. And I pray that you would communicate to us truths that would be life transformational in how we pray. For too often, our prayers are filled with self and for selfish motives and reasons and trials and troubles and tribulations and all these things, and we forget that the priority of the prayer, our highest honor as we approach you, as we come into your presence, is to revere, to honor, to hallow your name, to be reminded of who you are through your names, through your characteristics, your attributes, and your nature, and to glorify you in those. For that is not only our life objective to bring honor and glory to you, but that should be our prayer's objective as well. So help us in this study learn more about how to pray and help us unlearn how we're praying so that we can implement this truth as we approach you and pray. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Please be seated. As I mentioned earlier, my youngest son is with my wife this morning and they are worshiping in our son's church where he is the pastor. And and uh, it's interesting when you go to Canada. Anybody been to Canada other than me? Okay. Do you have a relative that lives there? So did you know that when you walk into someone's home in Canada, you take off your shoes? That is, you just take them off. So you better wear unholy socks. <laughs> and so, or at least clean socks. <laughs> And that is the habit, that is the custom, that is the tradition. You walk into someone's house and out of respect to them, you take off your shoes and everybody's sitting in the house or walking around the house in their socks or their bare feet. That is what you do when you visit someone in Canada. That's what's expected of you. 
And if you were not to adhere to that custom, they would think that you're probably an American and you're either unwise about their traditions or you just don't care about their household being clean. And so it's important that when you visit someone in Canada, you walk in and just take off your shoes. It's important to take, your, take the right shoes home when you put your shoes back on. But um, there, is, there is something here of significant importance as we enter into the very presence of God as we pray. You see, I'm convinced that there are no accidents, there are no oops with God. He is an incredibly intentional, strategic God, and every word that he writes in the Bible that you hold in your hand through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the men who wrote under that inspiration have written those words, and each word is significantly, intentionally important. And so when, when Jesus gives us a prescription, a model, a GPS, so to speak, of how we are to pray, he is very specific, he is very intentional, he is very deliberate. It is not a, just a, a flippant remark that, oh, by the way, pray like this. He is very intentional. And I'm convinced that in that intentionality, he not only gives us to pray, the command, but he gives us the steps are the approach that we are to take as we enter into this beautiful privilege we have called prayer. In other words, he not only gives us how to pray in a way that's acceptable to God, but he gives us now the steps that we ought to take as we pray, as we enter into the very holy of holies where God resides in prayer. And, and these steps are critical to our obedience to the command to pray. And he wants us to follow this prescription. He wants us to follow this guideline. He wants us, as we come to the presence of God, to step by step by step take these steps. And there are, some say five, some say seven steps that we are to take as we enter into the presence of God when we pray. And we are not to skip over a step. We're not to ignore the step that he prescribes for us. Because Jesus says, pray then like this, and if we are to be obedient to what he has commanded us to do, we will pray this way. To pray differently is to pray disobediently. And outside of the prescription are the model that Christ has given us to pray. And so here he gives us, I think, very intentionally, this first step as we enter into the presence of God through this beautiful privilege called prayer. What is the first step? It's to hallow his name. As we come into the presence of God, our first response to who God is, is to reverence him. We recognize as we come into his presence who he is, and that automatic response, because of that recognition, brings us to an acclamation, a proclamation, a discovery, and a response that he is who he is. It's automatic. It should be. Because we have recognized God in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, in all of his majesty as we enter into the presence of prayer, and we are driven to our face, if not to our knees, in recognition of who he is that leads us to a response that is the prescription of prayer. So let's take a look then at what he says to us in this text. As you look at verse 9, let's look at the recognition that God gives us as we enter into this beautiful privilege called prayer. Notice he says, 
Our Father in heaven. That's how he starts out. Now, he's very intentional, very deliberate. This is the first step. We, as we step into the very presence of God, are to recognize God for who he is. And Christ defines him and describes him as our Father in heaven. Why does he do that? Well, I think it's important for us to sort of dissect these words and understand why he has given us this as the prescription, as the GPS for why we enter and how we enter into the presence of God. He says, our, that is a pronoun, but notice that pronoun is singular. It is not plural. No, it's plural, not singular. I think many times we have a tendency to think that, that as we enter to the presence, we enter him singular. We enter into his presence by ourselves, and yet he addresses us. Remember, every word is intentional here. He calls us to pray our Father, helping us understand that prayer is not all about us. It's not all about me. If you notice in this prayer, let me just kind of read it this way. It says, pray then like this, my Father in heaven... Hallowed be your name. Give me this day my daily bread and forgive me of my debts as I forgive others who are indebted to me and lead me not into temptation but deliver me from evil. He doesn't say that, does he? It's always in the plural. It's not in the singular. So our praying is not a singular. He's reminding us as Jesus intentionally, strategically tells us how to pray, we are to be reminded that we are not the only ones accessing the presence of God and that we enter into the presence of God as a family, a community of faith where we share then this father who attends to our needs. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that he says to us, don't pray about your needs because that's not what he's saying. He just don't, just focus on yourself because there are other people who desperately need prey. Let me just put it this way. If there's a photograph of a group of people and you are asked to look at that photograph, who do you identify first? Come on now. Yourself. And if you look good, you're going to like the picture. And if you don't look good, you're going to want another one. Right? Because we are all self-centered. We are self-focused. And too often when we pray, we are looking into a mirror, looking in the reflection of ourselves, only addressing the needs that we believe we have and forgetting everybody else. One of the beauties about what I have discovered about this church is your compassion toward my family and the expression that you've given said, I'm praying for you during this time in your family's life. You're aware that there are others who have needs other than yourself. God is at work in all of our lives, and as a result of that, we need to understand that because he's at work in your life and my life and our life together, that God is our Father, and we should enter into his presence with the understanding that we share in the brotherhood and sisterhood, or as children of God, we enter into the presence of God our Father. So he says, our, then notice he says, Father. Now that word, many say, is the word Abba, And they like to define that in our English vernacular as daddy. I have a problem with that because I think that undermines who he is in many ways. I get what they're trying to say to us, but if we're not careful, we can disrespect the name father and disrespect the father himself by calling him our daddy because he's more than just a friend. He's our father and deserves our respect 
as such. So he is our father, and he is our daddy, but he is in a lofty position as our father. This word father here is singular. Why is that important? Because when we pray, we pray to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, who are three in one. We pray to him. We pray to no one else. We don't pray to anybody else. There are other religions and other people who pray to other gods of their own making. We saw in the text earlier how we are not to pray like the Gentiles because they pray to a God of their own making who has no ears, who has no eyes, no understanding about who they are, and they think they can, by all the babble they have, they can somehow gain his attention, but he doesn't exist. And so when we pray, we pray to a real God who is a singular God. And so we look to him and him alone when we pray, and no one else. Notice the word father is masculine. Now, I may get in trouble here. This may be my last Sunday today. <laughs> but he is not seeking out his gender. He is father. And there have been some who have tried to take the masculinity of the father and call him mother father. That's not what Jesus said. And if we are going to pray accurately, we must pray our Father because he is masculine, and there's a reason for that. But because of time constraints, I can't tell you why, because it would be a whole other sermon. <laughs> when you address him, he is our Father, not our Father-Mother. His gender is not in question, and he identifies his father as masculine. So he is singular, he is masculine. Now this is revolutionary when Jesus introduced this to those who were listening and who were going to follow him because they would never in the Old Testament ever address God as their father. As a matter of fact, as we studied several Sundays ago in John chapter five, we saw how they began to persecute Christ to the point where they wanted to crucify and kill Christ because he addressed God as his father and they did not like that. A traditional practicing Jew would never address God as father. And when they heard that, they were shocked because Jesus is giving to them the same privilege that he has. You can call him now father as I do. This was new. This was, wow, really? I can do that? We, we lose some of that today because we're not by custom practicing Jews in an Old Testament religion who would never address God as Father. And this was, this was strange to them. And I can imagine somebody hearing that for the first time. Going, wow, I get to call him Father? Wow, what a privilege. Notice he says, Father, in. What the word in means, it is a preposition of location. He is our Father in heaven. What is his location? Where is he? He is in heaven. And he is not helping us understand that God is in heaven and we're down here to, to sort of help us understand how far apart we are from God. But he's saying that when we pray, we actually come into the very dimension, into the very presence, into the very holy holies of God where God resides. I know God is transcendent. I know God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere all the time. But the Bible constantly refers to him as a God who is residing in heaven, and in heaven he is everywhere all the time. But he's in heaven. And so it's to help us understand that when I pray, when you pray, when we pray, we actually come into the presence of God. That's revolutionary. In Old Testament times, in the time of Jesus, in the New Testament time, only the priest once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. 
And some have said that they tie a rope around his ankle just in case when he went in and he was unworthy to be in the presence of God, they could pull him out because no one would go into the presence of God except the high priest one man one time a year, and that's it. Can you imagine if the rope was somehow loosed and he had to be in there a year until the next priest would go in and get him out? No one would dare to go into the Holy of Holies where God is. And he says, here, I'm accessible now. You get to come into the very holy of holies. And they're going, wow. Because, you see, their custom, their tradition, their religious practices, only the high priest once a year, and that's it. I get to come into the holy of holies. I am privileged enough where I have accessibility to God and the presence and the person of God myself, just a common, ordinary person. Yes, because that's what prayer is. But notice he says, our Father in heaven. Why heaven? Because I think Christ is reminding us that when we enter into the holy of holies, into the very throne room in the presence of God, that he is high and lifted up, that he is reigning and ruling on a throne. He is king, he is Lord, he is sovereign, he is on a throne, and he is reigning and he is ruling. He is sovereign, and we are to submit ourselves to his sovereignty. For he is the one who dictates and determines how we pray and what we pray for in a way that is pleasing to him. So when we pray, and I've, I'll be honest with you, this is one of the hardest sermons I've had in a long time, and I've belabored all this, not just because we had a funeral this week, but I've been studying this for two weeks. I want to make this very practical because I think sometimes we, we talk about these lofty theological concepts, but how do I make this a reality in my prayer life? Does that make sense? And so I've really struggled over this, and I'm going to honestly admit to you that probably I'm not quite there yet. Turn to the person next to you and said, neither am I. So I want to give something that's really strategically important to help us pray as we recognize God for who he is. First of all, as we pray, we need to recognize God's activity. Recognize God's activity. Here's an application. As I mentioned before in John 5, that God is at work everywhere all the time, and Christ is joining God in what God is doing. So if God is actively working in my life, in your life, and our life together, it's important that when we pray our Father that we join God in that activity and we pray according to the activity of the Father in my life and in our lives together. Okay? Make sense? Secondly, we need to recognize God's approachability. He's approachable. He is my Father. I thought about this when I sit down in the parking lot. You never know when you're going to get an illustration, but uh, I don't know if they're here, but there was a young family out here. They have a little bitty girl. She's about two or three. Anybody here want to admit who you are? <laughs> and, and, I, and I was sitting out there just watching people come by, and the people were behind me trying to get out of my way, but they were crossing. And it's this little bitty girl. She's like two or three, and, and she's, she's skipping across the street and looking at me, you know, like, don't run over me. And when she got to the curb, she stopped. And she looked up for her daddy. And her daddy was there. The minute she got there, he reached down, grabbed her hand, and she stepped up. And then she walked across the sidewalk and towards something there. And then she stopped and looked for her daddy again. And he was there to help her down. And I thought, that's the picture of this. He's our father who is there the moment we need him. 
with exactly what we need because he cares about us. I don't know what kind of father you had when you were grown or you're being raised when you were in your parents' home. But this father is a perfect father, perfect in every way. The attributes and the characteristics and the nature of God, he is perfect in every way. He's not like your earthly father. There are no perfect fathers. I don't care how great yours was, he wasn't perfect, neither was mine. For by grace we are saved through faith, and not of ourselves, but it is the gift of God. We're all fallen creatures saved by grace through faith. But this father is a father who is perfect in every way. So don't relate to your heavenly father the way you may have related to your earthly father because they are not exactly the same. But notice, not only is he approachable, but he is accessible, meaning I can come to him and access his presence anytime, anywhere, about anything. There's nothing that I can't bring to him that he won't listen and he won't care about and he won't help me with. And so he is accessible. But notice also as we pray, we need to understand that we need to recognize God's authority, that he is sovereign, and that we must submit to him because he, as our Heavenly Father, is Lord over our lives, and it is him that we are pleasing. It's almost like Jesus when he was praying just before he was arrested and crucified. And he was contemplating, considering the agony of the cross and the suffering that he would have to endure and the pain and all that stuff. And he was praying. And he said, Father, is there any way that this cup can pass from me? Is there any way that, that we can avoid this? And he finally came to the conclusion, not my will, but your will be done. There's some times when our Heavenly Father may not seem fair, may not seem attentive, in our pain, our agony, our suffering, and his what we seemingly think is his inattentiveness and his lack of coming to our rescue at just the right moment, he does care and he does love, and sometimes his will encompasses suffering and pain and agony, and yet he never abandons us and he never forsakes us. And as we pray, we need to make sure that we pray according to his will and we accept and embrace that will as God leads us to understand what he wants to do in and through us. Then we recognize God, and that recognition brings then a response, an automatic response from God's people. Notice the text, the second part of that sentence. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. What in the world does that mean? Uh, I'm glad you don't either. I don't either. So this sermon's over. We're going to go home now because I have not studied. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, when you read that, it's kind of what you kind of walk away with. I have no idea what this means. Come on, right? What does that mean? To hallow his name, what does that mean? I'm not quite sure. So how can I pray this way if I don't know what it means? Let's talk about that for a little bit. The word hallowed, be, it is one word in the original language. It makes two in our English language. Hallowed be, it means that he is already hallowed. And the word hallowed be, or to hallow, means to sanctify, to revere, to honor, to regard as holy, to exalt, to lift up, to magnify. And this word hallowed be is actually a verb. 
It is a verb that indicates that it is something that we must do. It is something that must be done. So we are told, as Christ is instructing us how to pray, as we enter into the presence of God and we recognize God, our Father in heaven, we are automatically expected to, to do something. There's an action that is required from us in the presence of God. That's a verb. That means we, we must do something, and, and it's on us. It's not on him. It's something he's asking from us and of us to do. So not only is it a verb, but it's passive. Why is it passive? Because it's not something that we can do. It's not something that we do to make it a reality. He is already hallowed. He is already there. My prayers do not lift him to a place that is not already his by his nature and by who he is. He is already hallowed. He is already elevated. He is already on his throne in all of his glory. And I I was thinking about this morning, I was thinking about, if if you want to read John's vision of getting, you know, when he goes into the Holy of Holies, when he is in the presence of Jesus, that beautiful description of of what he is is seeing there, Christ in all of his splendor and all of his glory, he's already there. So if I am commanded to do something, if I am expected to hallow someone who is already there, Okay, because it's passive. But notice, too, it's an imperative. It is a command. That means it's not optional for you and me. If we come into the presence of God and we recognize him, our Father in heaven, and we fall on our face in, in prayer and in petition to him, we are expected then as a command. The first step, the first thing we do when we enter into prayer is to hallow his name. It is a command. It is not an option. We can't go straight to our needs. We can't ignore who he is as we come into his presence. We are to automatically, the first thing we do is recognize God in his splendor and his glory and to hallow him who is already hallowed. It's an imperative, but notice it also is singular, meaning he and he alone is to be hallowed, no one else. That means you're not in the picture because he shares his glory with no one, according to Isaiah. So we're going to put it together in a minute. Hallowed be, notice, your name. Whose name is it? We're praying to God. It's his name. I learned at the service Thursday that I am named after my uncle Charlie, my mother's uncle named Charlie. And the reason why she named me Charles, and some do call me Charlie, my wife does, the reason I was named Charles is because of her uncle Charlie because my mother, when she thinks of my uncle Charlie, knows his character and his nature and has fond memories of him and loved him for who he was and what he meant to her. That's what a name is. See, today we name people Zoe. Any other weird names out there? <laughs> Never mind. Uh, that's, not a, that's a rhetorical question. We don't pick names because they mean something anymore. Some of us who are older remember our Uncle Charlie, so we named our child Charles because every time we hear the name, we think of Uncle Charlie because we have fond memories of because of who he was. And, and it, it brings back those, those concepts and ideas of, of it, the name meant something. The name Charles actually means manly. Uh, our son Matthew, who uh, is our oldest son, 
He was a gift from the Lord, and I'm not going to explain that to you if you need explanation, but he was a gift, an unexpected gift. And because of that, we named him Matthew. The word, the name Matthew means gift of God. We chose a name because we believed he was God's gift to us. And we understood that accountability and responsibility of raising him, he was God's gift to us. See, names have meaning. No one named God other than God himself. No one gave God his name. He picked his own names because of who he is. And God in his word continually describes himself by certain names. And you want to revolutionize your prayer life, do a Bible study on the names of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and take a list of those names and define those names, describe those names. You have weeks of praying without asking for a single thing. And so he says, your name. So we are to hallow the name of God. Why name? Because it is symbolic of his attributes, his character, and his nature. So as we hallow him, we are to think about, we are to reflect upon in response to his attributes, his character, and his nature. So here's not a rhetorical question. Here's a question. Give me some names of God. Come on, just give me some names. Keep coming. Keep going. Jehovah Jireh. El Shaddai. Jesus. Helper. Lord. You see, as we, as we respond to the character and the nature of God, we respond because we recognize God for who he is, his attributes, his character, and his nature. So we are to respond to God as we pray, and here's the response. Four things we can do to respond to the character and nature and the attributes of God. We need to esteem God's glory when we pray. To esteem God's glory when you pray. You know, some of us, some of us have a hard time praying because we, we need to unlearn some, some things about prayer. And so some of us, honestly, many of us in this room probably have a hard time with our prayer life. We're kind of like the disciples when Jesus asked them to pray and he came back and said, could you not just pray with me at least one hour? You ever thought about praying for a solid hour? Have you ever prayed for a solid hour? Why do we have our time praying for a solid hour? Because we need to unlearn some things about prayer. It's not that hard. And, um, and, and, and it's important that as we approach the throne of grace, we value God in all of his holiness, his splendor, his majesty, his glory for who he is and his attributes and his character and his nature, that we simply just lavish him with praise. Not because God has this egocentric personality that needs from us a pat on the back and a recognition of who he is and what he's done, but because he's God and he deserves it. He's not like us. It's always great when people come up and tell us how great we are, isn't it? But we're flawed, we're carnal. God's not like us. The prayer that I sent out to some of the pastors, I, I think I sent to Garrett and Will and um, Anthony and to, to um, Victor this morning. Here's, here's a prayer that I sent out to pastors in the morning just to remind them. I'm just going to read part of it. It's from Revelation 5, 12 to 13. 
You want to know how to hallow the name of the Lord and to value him and honor him? Go to the scriptures. There are dozens of scriptures that hallow the name of God. Here's, here's just, just one, Revelation 5, 12 to 13. Holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. That's Revelation 4, 8. Worthy are you, Lamb of God, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To you, Lord God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You can pray that prayer. You should pray that prayer. Now, what honor could your prayer bring to him as you recognize who he is and respond from an overflowing heart of the grace and the mercy of God. Secondly, you need to exalt his nature and character, which I just did in this, this, this short paragraph. You can just say, Lord, you're loving. Talk about how loving he is. You are so kind. You're gracious. You're merciful. You're caring. See, it, it's not hard. When you think about the, the attributes and the character and the nature of God, you just exalt him for those characteristics, for those attributes, and for his nature, and you just tell him all of the incredible things he is to him. Then you can embrace the holiness of God. I say, Lord, I need to be more like you. Help me be holy. For you see, I think this prayer is just a petition, is a prayer in which we stand before a holy God, and a holy God requires us as well to be holy. And then lastly, we need to expand the glory of God and the holiness of God by praying that others who don't know him would recognize his holiness, they would receive that holiness, that they would revere his holiness as you do, and they would represent that holiness through a holy life. Pretty simple. We shouldn't just flippantly, casually run up to our daddy carelessly, thoughtlessly, as if he's not the God that he is. Jesus intentionally, strategically gave us the prescription, the GPS, the first step as we enter into the very presence of God, how we are to pray. And it would be unwise of us not to adhere to and follow this prescription, this model, this example. Turn with me to one scripture, Mark 10, 37. It's not going to be on your screen. I didn't give it to... to, to uh, I didn't give it to you, so don't worry about it. <laughs> Besides that, I love to hear the Bible in this place. Man, you guys are awesome. I tell you, I don't hear that in many churches, the rustling of the pages. And it's not because I sent you to the wrong text this time. <laughs> Mark 10, 37. James and John have heard Christ now speak about He's going to Jerusalem to be lifted up. 
They assume that Jesus is going to be coronated on the throne of David as the king of Israel and liberate them from their captivity to the Roman Empire. He's going to set up his kingdom. And they are thinking about, what is my role? What am I going to get to do? I'm in the inner circle. Remember, these disciples are just like you and I. They're no different than us. They're still humans. If you, if you don't believe that, just read the New Testament in any of the Gospels, and you'll see how flawed they were. And they assumed that Jesus was going to, to be coronated as a king on the throne of David. And they're thinking, where do we fit? And we'll just skip up to verse 35. Let me just read it to you. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Hey, Jesus, write us a blank check. Just sign the check, give it to us, put my name on it, and don't put an amount and let us fill in the blank. How'd you like that? Give us whatever we want. I wonder sometimes if that's not the way we pray. Jesus who is kind and considerate and compassionate, turns to them and said, what do you want me to do for you? What is it that you want me to do for you? Notice, what do you want me to do for you? Not what I want to do for you. What do you want me to do for you? It's turned around, isn't it? Isn't it? I know this is not about prayer, but it's about the disciples approaching Christ with a request, which is really what prayer is, isn't it? And they said to him, notice what they say. Grant us to sit, one at your right side and one at your left, in your glory. What are they asking? Share your glory with me. God said in Isaiah, I share my glory with no one. You and I, myself included, are flawed human beings. We are carnal in nature. We are self-centered. We are egotistical. As great a church as you are, and I brag on you a lot, we're humans. We want to be in the driver's seat. We want to be at the head of the table. We want to be recognized. Don't we? And I wonder how much of our praying is self-centered rather than God-centered. Our lives, our ministry, and our prayers should be for your glory and your glory alone. That's it. And my job as an interim to help you realize as a church, this is not a criticism, but it's, it's a remark, and don't quote me well anymore, okay? God's not interested in the glory of this church. He's not here to make Paramount's name renowned in this community. He's here to work in you and through you to make himself glorified and renowned and revered in this community, and that is it. And anytime any church tries to make themselves renowned and rob God from his glory, they will die. You are not here to resurrect your, your past into your future to be the church that you used to be. You're going to be a different church, a better church that's going to glorify God even more than you did in the past. No pastor, no preacher is going to come here to make this church renowned in its name. You have a reputation in this 
state with the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention. Some people have wanted to know how in the world did you become interim at, at, at Paramount? By the grace of God. And by a guy named Keith. Are you here, Keith? Who happened to pull my name out of a hat and recommended me somewhere. I didn't ask to be here. And they want to know, how did you get to do that? I just, I guess it's God. But, but I want you to understand, church, as great as you are, it's not about your glory. It's about his. And if we're not careful, our prayers will be about God. Glorify us. The songs we sing and the ministries you have, the pastors on your staff, the money you give, the time you surrender to the service of the king is all for his glory. And Christ intentionally told us that when we pray, we are to do exactly what John said in John 3, 30. He must increase and I must decrease. God, increase. Be glorified in us. We, we, by our exaltation, are not lifting you to a place that you already occupy, but we just want our lives, our prayers, and our ministry and your church to bring honor, reverence, and glory to you and you alone. Father, thank you for the joy and the privilege and opportunity we have to be here today. Forgive us, God, because we are very human. I mean, you created us. <laughs> you know how human we are. You know how flawed we are, how egocentric, how self-centered. And yet you love us. And your grace is more than sufficient and your mercy is more than enough. Be patient with us as we learn to humble ourselves before you and you alone as the one and true and only holy God. Forgive us when we pray often and try to circumvent your glory and take from you what is rightfully yours. Clean up our prayer life. Lord, teach us to pray. Teach me to pray. I'm still learning. It's a process as I slowly, daily die to self so that you might continue to live and rise in and through our lives together with you. Sometimes, God, we're so filled with seeing ourselves in our own reflection in a mirror and so focused on our own needs, trials and troubles and tribulations and difficulties and hardships and all the things. And our prescriptions of what we ask you to do are often more self-focused rather than you-focused. And so, Lord, if suffering and pain and hardship or even blessing is a part of your plan, I pray that we would pray according to your glory as we hallow your name through our prayers and through the lives that we live. Teach us to pray. With your head bowed and your eyes closed this morning, let me invite you to just consider what the Spirit of God may be communicating in your life today. Maybe you're here and you can't call him Father because you've not been 
born again, you've not placed your faith and trust in Christ, and today you want to leave this place with the assurance that His mercy and His grace is more than sufficient to meet your need. And you can walk away today calling Him your Father by placing your faith and trust in Christ. And we ask you to do that if you've never done that before. And the Spirit of God is leading you to do that. Our pastors will be here. And Anthony and some others will be in the back and would love to talk to you about that. Other pastors will be here. If you're online, you can email us and talk to us. Tell us about your desire. Or there's a card in the pew that you can fill out as well and put in the in the place as you exit to let us know of your desire to follow Christ and to be able to call him Abba Father, your Father, and to have access to him, availability to him. Because without that, you don't. You need to make that decision today. Maybe you're here today and you are wanting to become a part of this family. We are a family, a community of faith. To move your letter and become a part of this church, even during the time without a pastor, it's a great time to be a part of this great church. They will love you and care for you as they have me and take you in. And you can be part of this family if God is leading you to do that. But maybe this morning, believer member of this church should your prayer be Lord teach me to pray do you need to unlearn some practices that you've been practicing in your prayer life with God have you been casually flippantly just going into prayer without recognizing God for who he is and responding to him in a right way that honors and glorifies him Maybe your prayer today would be, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to hallow your name. Describe to you the characteristics and the nature, the attributes of who you are. And to be more focused about your glory than my own. Whatever decision God has placed upon your heart, we're going to stand in a minute, we're going to sing, and it'll be time for you to respond to whatever God has placed upon your heart. God, I pray that as we stand and sing, to yours be the glory by the response that we give in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.